All right, Mr. Neal, we'll hear from you. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the Court. As the Court is aware, we're here today only on the attorney's fee award issue. District Court awarded uh, $570,000 in fees, where the plaintiff recovered $58,000 in compensatory damages. The, the District Court uh, in, erred in three ways that rise to the level of an abuse of discretion. I'm going to try to talk about at least two of those today. The first arose in the context of the District Court's determination that the plaintiff obtained a significant degree of success, which, as the Court knows, is what the cases say is the most important factor for a District Court to look at in awarding attorney's fees, the plaintiff's success as a whole in the case. The District Court cited two facts in support of that statement. The first was plaintiff won on liability. Clearly not, not disputed at this point. We chose not to appeal the, the last trial verdict. But anytime you're talking about attorney's fees, the plaintiff will have won on liability. So that doesn't really add much to the question of whether the plaintiff obtained a significant degree of success. Second, the court said that the plaintiff recovered $58,240 in compensatory damages. This court's cases show both that the district court abused its discretion in reaching that determination and that this is a situation that constitutes a plaintiff achieving only limited success. The cases say that when the recovery is only a small part of the total damages sought, that is a situation where the plaintiff did not obtain a significant degree of success. That comes from, uh, we've cited cases on pages 17 or 18 of our brief. We talk a lot about the Goomheer case. And then the other one is the Farrer versus Hobby case. What was sought here? I'm sorry? What did he seek here? He sought, um, he, he didn't specify the amount of compensatory damages, but also sought $250,000 in punitive damages. So that's your main point, that he didn't get punitive damages? That, yeah, on, on this first abuse of discretion, that's I right. And, and that's important because in the Farrer case, Farrer versus Hobby, the U.S. Supreme Court says that a district court must give primary consideration in a damages case to whether the plaintiff achieved what the plaintiff was trying to achieve in terms of a damage award. A year, that's 1992. A year later, this court in the Loggins versus Dello case, which we've cited in our brief, said, expressly holds that concept applies to the situation where a plaintiff seeks compensatory and punitive damages, but only recovers compensatory damages. <clears throat> the district court did not address that issue at all, much less give it the primary consideration that the U.S. Supreme Court says it has to be given. So that in itself, because the court, Supreme Court says the district court has to give a primary consideration and the district court didn't give it any consideration, it simply said plaintiff did not achieve, uh, obtain punitive damages, but plaintiff did obtain compensatory damages. That's essentially saying I'm not going to consider it. It's certainly not giving it primary consideration. That in itself is an abuse of discretion because that went to the court's determination of a significant degree of success, which then uh, tainted the rest of the court's opinion on attorney's fees. Counsel, does it matter whether the uh, number of reasonable or the, the number of hours reasonably uh, expended on the case would be the same whether they won punitive damages or not? No, the cases don't say that, Your Honor. Uh, they say that the court has to consider the relief sought versus the relief obtained, and then this court expressly applies that to the punitive damages context. 
And, and that somewhat ties into the second point that I'll, I'll get to in a moment about the overall hours in relation to once the, once the other side knew what the damages were going to be. Uh, but closing out on this point, the, uh, so we've got error in the way the district court handled it, given the, what the Supreme Court and this court have said the court must do. And then we have a situation that uh, plainly qualifies as a plaintiff having limited success. And that's recovered a small amount. Uh, only prevailed on one of three claims that were originally asserted. And I know the plaintiff claims there were really only two claims, and I would direct the court to the complaint uh, at appendix uh, page 10, uh, paragraphs 54 and 55, that clearly show there were two different FRSA claims. And then the distinction between the punitive damages and the compensatory damages are is the third um, reason why there was limited success here. And the fourth is, this is not a case where there was some general benefit for the public. You know, there was no general civil rights issue raised or, you know, suit against a government entity about some practice. And so that alone should result in reversal, and the court should then take up the question of whether it should remand or do a calculation on its own. The, the second error that I wanted to talk about that rises to the level of abuse of discretion is not the, the district court not addressing, much less following, the principle in the Goomheer case that uh, where the court said that uh, fees cannot be greatly disproportionate to the ultimate benefits that may be reasonably attain obtainable, and then criticized uh, the plaintiff for encouraging incurring large fees once the plaintiff knew that the case was a relatively small damages case. In that instance, it was fifty to $75,000. That was... 15 years ago or something like that. The district court should have applied that principle. We raised that argument, and, and the court just didn't address it at all. And so that constitutes not applying a factor that this court has said has to be considered. And in fact, the counsel, doesn't that, doesn't that factor work both ways, though? I mean, when the defense realizes that there's only $58,000 involved, shouldn't that um, cause the defense to maybe not expend as much vigor and uh, employ uh, as many attorneys and, uh, and, and, and fight the case as strenuously. You know, sometimes the way the case is defended um, dictates um, the, the amount of effort, the amount of time that uh, plaintiff's counsel has to put into it. So doesn't it work both ways? Well, I agree that sometimes that can be an issue that is not. I, mean, I read in the I read in the plea in the uh, briefing, and you can tell me if this is correct. Something like ten or eleven attorneys on defense side over the course of ten years in this case. Yeah, a ten-year case. That that's right, Your Honor. Now it's not the same attorneys doing the same thing. You didn't go down to a single lawyer. No, and um, you're saying, well, they had three. That's right. Oh, but you never went down to one. Well, we've cited cases, Your Honor, that make the point that it's not an apt comparison of plaintiff's counsel to defendant's yeah, I counsel. I, and, I mean, this court called it an apples to oranges comparison. And, you know, if they don't go down to three, you know, that was the suggestion we made. The, the overall point is once they knew the damages were $58,000, 
you know, they shouldn't have had, it's not just three lawyers. It was not one, not two, but three FRSA specialists that they had involved in the case. Well, would you want them to have somebody who's unfamiliar with FRSA? Well, one, one of the counsel was there um, uh, based on being a local counsel requirement. So, um, you know, but, I, you know, I take that. Before point. you get in, I had one other thing I wanted to ask on a topic I guess you weren't planning to raise, but you make a point about the fact that the first trial Right. Result in a reversal because of the error by, proposed right. by the plaintiff. And you say the district court erred in not reducing the fees there. As I recall, the judge said, well, because the damages award was derived from that trial and that carried through that it was appropriate to award fees. What's your proposal? How would, how, if there was a way to, is there a way to segregate the damages fees, so to speak, from the part that you would say is attributable to the error? You know, it's a rough number, Judge Colleton. Um, I'd say probably 80, 85 percent of the case was not about the damages. You know, the damages testimony was a very short part of it. There was a little bit of the briefing afterwards. So roughly of that 103,000, I'd say it's about 80, 85,000. But you seem to argue it should be zeroed out. Well, that, because that's what the cases say. They say if the plaintiff's responsible, then it should be zeroed out. Well, I know, out. but this is a little bit unusual because of the damages part. So... Mm-hmm. And, and we take we take that point. You know, I, I would say that isn't what those cases say. But if the court was going to do that, he didn't. The judge didn't do that. It was an abuse of discretion to not do anything on that point. Um, and uh, okay, that's all I wanted to okay. cover. And, and, and just let me. Um, well, let me try to reserve the last all right, thirty seconds may. if I can. Thank you. Very well. Mr. Dingwall, we'll hear from you. Thank you. Good morning. May it please the court. I'm Jeff Dingwall on behalf of Edward Blackerby. I think starting with uh, the district court's uh, discretion in awarding the fees that he did, it's clear that he it wasn't like a, a rubber stamp situation. Uh, Judge Boo was on this case shortly after the summary judgment decision was issued by Judge Gaitan. He presided over all three trials, ruled on countless motions, and in reviewing the fee petition, uh, disallowed a significant number of, of hours that we submitted and also uh, disallowed the uh, cost petition that we submitted for our litigation costs. So this wasn't some situation where the district court simply rubber-stamped a fee petition. Uh, there was significant analysis and a review of the hours submitted, the costs submitted, and a reduction was, was made. Um, I don't think the argument is that it was a rubber stamp. I think the argument is that it was analytically flawed. Correct. So why don't you address that? Why wasn't it error to uh, consider the failure to get any punitive damages? Well, there was a, a, pun a finding in our favor on the punitive issue. Now, the fact that there wasn't a, an actual dollar amount attached to that, the jury did come back saying, you met the punitive standard. We're just going to give you zero dollars for that. So we were actually successful on that claim. You know, the damages just weren't there. <laughs> I guess it depends how you define success. I, I would agree with that. When, as a plaintiff's lawyer, I understand well, maybe, that. maybe, but I think the... Defense position is that should be viewed as limited success if you get a finding but zero damages. Well, I, I don't think the amount of time that went into the case changes 
at all based on that, on the punitive phase of the case. It was bifurcated, and I think we spent maybe a quarter of a day on the punitive damages issue. So if anything, maybe there's a few hours there. But the uh, BNSF has not pointed to any individual time entries that they claim are unnecessary or that we overexpended on. They're just simply saying, as a blanket measure, wipe out these hours. And they haven't, before the district court and before this court, have not said these are the specific hours, these are the specific time entries that should be disallowed uh, as a result of they were unnecessary or they were, they were devoted towards something that was unsuccessful. They're just saying, as a blanket matter, wipe out the, the fees, you know, more than half. So to the extent that their argument is, you know, we overexpended, we don't, there's been no issue raised with the district court or here as to what that time looks like. And going back to, you know, the argument that there was limited success on the compensatory damages, um, again, that's very relative and very fact-specific. And going back to 2015 when that case was tried and the, and the verdict was rendered, this was, I think, the third case in the country that had ever been tried under this legal standard as adopted in 2009. So it wasn't like there was some great deal of precedent out there. We were finding our way through it um, just as much as the court was. Uh, there was only, at that point, two appellate decisions, including the one from this court, which at that point had not been applied in a, in a trial setting. And so it was very unclear as to what how that would really play out until our case came up on appeal for the first time. Uh, there was no pattern jury instructions at the time. And, and frankly, we brought a case where there was no economic damages. So it wasn't something where it was a predictable setting. We didn't have a liquid, liquidated damages case where, where we were going in and saying, we know we're only going to recover $20,000 or something of that nature. So we had to litigate this case as... But even the Judge Boo, I thought, said in his order that the fact that the first trial was reversed, based, the first judgment was reversed based on the flawed plaintiff's theory would have been a basis to reduce. He just declined to do so because of the damages component. Isn't that right? He did reduce uh, the hours on appeal after that. So but only on the appeal, but... Why shouldn't the bulk of that trial be disallowed? Bulk of the fees for that trial be disallowed since it was fruitless due to the plaintiff's faulty theory. What well, <clears throat> I would the cases support that that if you propose bad instructions and get a reversal that you can't get fees. Well, I think. I I think the case laws, uh, the cases that reduce fees on that theory are not that somebody submitted a jury instruction that was adopted by the court and given. They're more where the plaintiffs have, have exercised some sort of dilatory conduct. They've, they've uh, you know, promoted theories that are, you know, really beyond the scope of, of what could be expected to be reasonable. Uh, things of that nature have they exercised in delay, those types of, that type of conduct. In this case, that's not what happened at all. We had, again, very limited uh, precedent to go off of. We proposed a jury instruction based on established case law, and they proposed one that was different. And the district court adopted ours. Similarly, what happened in the second trial was they proposed a jury instruction that the district court adopted that became the basis for reversal by this panel uh, on round two. So 
and I don't think either of those were necessarily in bad faith. They were simply, we were taking law that we thought was applicable, they were taking law that they thought was applicable, and we submitted it, and the district court made a decision. Um, and as far as the, uh, why shouldn't the totality of the, the hours spent on trial one be disallowed, there's just simply no way to determine what hours spent were applicable to the damages verdict versus liability. I mean, they're really part and parcel. And so... Well, but couldn't that be estimated? I mean, we have a second trial that was only on liability, for example. Correct. So presumably that should tell us what it costs to try only the liability phase. I would suggest that the hours were almost identical. Uh, I mean, the, the trial itself, both trials two and three, were tried almost over the exact amount of time. Uh, the exact same witnesses almost... Exact. Uh, I think we put on our case in about a day and a half each, and each time they, I think they did about the same. I think the jury deliberated for exactly two hours and oh, every well, time. I'm not sure how that helps you, though. That suggests that the addition of the damages in the first trial didn't really result in any fees. Well, that maybe the first trial should just be zeroed out. I don't. I think it's impossible to zero out the verdict from the first trial because we, again, we just don't know. If the evidence was the same and there was a, 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 an economic or a, a jury verdict resulting in a monetary award to the plaintiff, there's simply no way of determining what connected with the jurors, what made them arrive at that number, any more so than it, than it is to go back and look, you know, guessing, and that's all it would be is guesswork on what the jury's what the jurors considered important and what they didn't. And here we've got BNSF saying, look, the, the monetary verdict from the first trial has to be considered here as a basis for the uh, attorney fees, and yet they also want us to throw out all the time that it went in, into attaining that verdict. I don't think you can have it both ways. So either that time mattered in achieving that verdict, which BNSF advocated for as the law of the case, or if all of that time goes away, I don't see how that verdict can also stand on its own in a vacuum. I think a, a final point on, uh, on this and BNSF's position as a whole is that adopting this approach that they are taking, this proportionality standard, or what have you, really paints lawyers in an ethical conundrum where we have to decide how much work to put in on behalf of our client and trying to guess what the monetary outcome of that case might be, if, if any. And so it, it incentivizes defense lawyers to bring the full range of everything they have, money, time, resources, against a plaintiff, where a plaintiff has to stand back and say, well, geez, I don't know if I can do this or not because maybe it's over-lawyering the case or I'm, I'm doing too much work and I might not get the, re the result. And it really paints lawyers in an ethical uh, conundrum trying to decide how much to advocate for their client in those cases where the outcome is uncertain and certainly uh, where the, the, legal, or the legal principles and issues are no less important than any civil rights case. I don't think I need to use my 12 seconds. Very well. Thank, Thank you, you very for much. your argument.
Mr. Neal. Thank you. Uh, Judge Shepard, I'd like to go back to your question. I'm not sure I fully answered it. That issue we were talking about with the staffing of the case once the damages were limited, it, it's something that this court in the Goomheers case says the district court had to consider. And here the district court didn't consider our argument on that at all, didn't address it one way or the other. There's no finding that BNSF ran up the cases um, or you know, BNSF uh, had all these lawyers and so it ought to be treated the same. Their argument that we took, the, took steps that led to, uh, may I finish, Judge Colleton? Yes. Uh, their argument that uh, they, we took steps that led to the fees being increased on their side, it's just that. It's argument. The things they point to are not high-dollar things. And so we'd ask you to, if you're considering that point, to, to bear that in mind. Thank you, Your Honors. We're asking that the court reverse and modify the award. All right. Thank, thank you for your argument. Thank you to both counsel. The case is submitted. The court will file a decision in due course.